I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Ralph Leonard, a contributor to the publications Unheard, Sublation Magazine, and Arrow Magazine, joins us to discuss a wide range of topics on Israel-Palestine and the bombing of Gaza, as well as the October 7th Hamas attack. This is one of the longer conversations I've done in the ongoing Israel-Palestine and Gaza series, so let's get right to it with Ralph Leonard. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I reached out to recently. I've been following some of his uh, commentary his articles in places like Unheard and <clears throat> Sublation Magazine. Uh, he's been on my friend Jason Miles' show, This is Revolution. And he has a very interesting piece about uh, Hamas, some of the elements of the left that are uh, sort of apologizing uh, for Hamas's October 7th attack, and also Franz Fanon and how people may be misunderstanding him. Uh, Ralph Leonard, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. I, I forgot to add, I, I liked your description of yourself on your, your Twitter, uh, the conservative Marxist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Well, I um, stole that from uh, Christopher Hitchens because he, he used that term. So I, I wanted to appropriate it in my own way <laughs> from him. So in regards to the October 7th attack and the article you wrote, uh, Hamas apologists have misunderstood France Fanon. Uh, maybe you could just talk, give a, a basic overview of the points you're making in that piece. Yeah. Um, ever since uh, the October 7th attack happened, like, there's been 
a whole deluge of commentary on it. And there's a, you know, there was a part on the left, the, I call it the decolonial left, who in various ways either like carried water for it or outright celebrated it as like an act of resistance by the, you know, the, dis the, the dispossessed and, you know, the wretched of the earth. And oftentimes in this argument, especially with Israel-Palestine, Franz Fanon comes up a lot because he's seen as, uh, you know, the the uh, primary theorist about decolonization. You know, that's a word you hear a lot, uh, in particular with Palestine, like decolonization. We have to decolonize Palestine. And in particular, he has a reputation when it comes to the discussions about political violence, you know, the ethics of violence, you know, what place does armed violence have in, you know, a struggle, an anti-colonial struggle against an occupying power, or just other, any sort of uh, oppressive force. And I think a lot of the commentary on it, so it's as if they only just read like the infamous passages that describe, you know, the cathartic uh, effect that violence can have on the colonized when he's fighting back, you know, the, the humanizing effect it can have on him as if, uh, you know, he, this is part of him regaining his self-respect. Like they just read those infamous passages without reading the whole argument he's making in The Wretched of the Earth. And I think um, uh, it, it's a very low lopsided view because uh, it doesn't take into account like the consequences that and the dangers that uh, come with violence that and what violence has um, can do on the colonized and the colonizer because the, his basic point is that because colonialism is such a all-encompassing, violent, even you can say totalitarian system, that and violence is required to maintain it. Therefore, it's gonna create violence in response to it. But then there's the other side of where he sort of said that um, you know, there's a passage in Direction of the Earth where he talks about how you know hatred isn't can't be an agenda that you know violence for the sake of it for the sake of you know killing a colonizer because it kind of feels good isn't enough that's just not a political agenda it has to be this to be connected for, to a you know wider social vision or a political goal so in fanon's case his main reference point was algeria in the 1950s or um, or Vietnam in the 1950s and his his basic point was that um the the struggle for free Algeria should be one where you know create a society that can include you know the Algerians the Arabs and as well the you know the colonists the Piedmont that they can live as equals not just them two but also Jews and Berbers you know, it's a civic 
with a civic notion of citizenship, not an ethno-national one. And I think he he in in his other book, The Dying Colonialism, he just he just he says that he wants an Algeria that's open to all, where every genius can thrive. But obviously, in the history of Algeria after independence, that's not what you got. You did get this regression into ethno-nationalist dictatorship. And, you know, the Piet Noir left, uh, the Jews were slowly pushed out, and the Berbers were forcibly assimilated into this sort of ethno-nationalist conception of the Algerian nation. So in that sense, like a lot of the this appropriation of Fanon within the decolonial left on, you know, certain co college campuses or um, within uh, academia can have this notion of decolonization that's very a uh, kind of ethno-nationalist conception, a very reactionary form, a sort of nativist restorationism instead of a kind of a way of building a free society. And that's sort of the point I make because what Hamas did on October 7th as I sort of say in the piece, it is not the Battle of Algiers, you know, the yeah, famous... You compare it to Pierre Pasolini's uh, Salo. Um, yeah, it's, which shows like the, you know, the political degeneration of it. It's just like uh, kind of, you know, sadistic violence just to, you know, humiliate the enemy. And that's not a political agenda. It can never be one. <laughs> So that was basically my basic point. Could you talk a little bit about more about Algeria uh, and the comparisons being made to Palestine and, and why you don't agree with those comparisons um, and just filling some of my listeners in on uh, that history, because I, I always assume I have neophytes. <laughs> um, well, obviously just to, Basically, because what we're really discussing is the issue of settler colonialism, right? And how much Israel-Palestine can sort of fit into that paradigm. And there's been this long-running debate on it. And to cut uh, some uh, story short, I th I think a reasonable person can say talk about Israel as a settler colonial state and Zionism as a settler colonial movement. That was also a nationalist one. But you have to be, you know, rigorous about it you can't just be promiscuous with it and this is where the com any comparison with algeria kind of falls down because for one the pied noir uh colonists had a metropole to go back to if anything you know if uh, they lost their power israel israelis don't have a metropole because israelis come from a vast um array of countries, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe who were persecuted there, uh, the Mizrahim from the Middle East, like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, who were also pushed out by various Arab nationalist regimes as, you know, revenge and retaliation for the creation of Israel and the Sephardic Jews from uh, North Africa. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, because if for any sort of restorationist fantasy that, you know, we can, that Palestine would be made wholly Arab again and you can just push the Jews out. So, like, they don't have anywhere to go. For, the, for 
most, the majority of Israelis, Israel is their homeland. You know, that's, you know, we're like, you know, many of them, third, fourth, fifth generation uh, uh, Israelis have lived, grown up. That is their homeland, if you want to put it like that. Um, so, and if we are going to make an analogy with Zionism and Israel, it won't be with Algeria. It would be with Liberia, the Liberia uh, movement in uh, the United States, which similarly was a movement among an oppressed uh, people, Black Americans, motivated by diaspora nationalism, Sons uh, Metropole, that they went there to, you know, return to their lost homeland to create a new society. But in the process of doing that, came up against a native population that were already there. And that led to a lot of, you know, conflict and oppression in different ways to Palestine. So I don't want to say it's a like-for-like -like analogy, but if you are going to make this analogy with any other settler colonial um, project, it would be with more with Liberia than with Algeria. I was going to say in regards to what you said about that there are, you know, third, fourth generation Israelis. I think that's an important point because, you know, it's not like every Israeli is is from a rich family in Tel Aviv. You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I've had people say to me, well, why can't they just, you know, why can't the Israelis just move? Um back to where they came from, which I don't understand what that means, because, <laughs> uh, you know, first off, you're third, fourth generation, and you're from, say, uh, a poorer family, and there are poorer families in Israel. I don't, it's it's not like you can just move, right? Like, it's, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, it's like me being in the US, I can't just like, move to Canada tomorrow, you know, do you, <laughs> do you think there's a lot of just overlooking realities when it comes to all of this? Yeah, and it, and it also comes from a another kind of ethno-nationalist weird view that you know is Israel is some kind of artificial entity, like uniquely so, and it's illegitimate in a way that other nation states aren't. Which is silly because like there are plenty of nation states that arose out of violence and you know ethnic cleansing and you know most of the nation states that grew out of the 20th century <laughs> came out of ethnic cleansing in some form or another doesn't just mean that you can just go in there and just evict uh just the people there or just say that i know because you hear this like you can hear some you know this stupid slogans from certain like anti-zionists that well go back to poland or go back to Latvia to to some like Israelis, but like okay, it's like. But what about the ones who are, whose ancestry doesn't originate in Poland or Latvia? What about the ones who originate in Iraq? Should they go back to Iraq or Lebanon or Egypt? You know. <laughs> One of the things I always hear, and I've heard this from both Zionists and pro-Palestinians, who say, well. Uh, the, the Israelis should just move. I always hear people say, well, we have precedent. Look at what happened after World War II with uh, the Germans in Poland and how they were expelled. How do you respond to people that try to bring up that example? I don't know if you have a, uh, a thought on that. It's like, well, 
<laughs> no, no, that's not. That should never be an example to, because then you're just legitimizing ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I mean, you could legitimize what happened to the Palestinians with that. You know, there there are Zionists who legitimate. No, I've, I've seen that with Zionists yeah. where they'll say, "Well, you know, these are hostile populations. We have the precedent from Poland." Uh, yeah. So that's why we kicked them out, and they have to be kicked out because they're a hostile population. They're a threat to the nation, you know. So, yeah, it's it's cruel to just treat like people like on a bit of chessboard like that, you know. That oh, we can just move these people here. It's a very kind of, you know, ethnic, racial kind of weird way. So it's sort of because like those those Germans were in like Poland and parts of the former Soviet Union and uh, you know the logic was Germany is their real homeland so just dump them back into Germany and <laughs> like you you know Zionists say well there are 22 other Arab states the Palestinians are Arabs why not just dump them there and it's like and it's it, now it's just it's not it's not a view that I don't think anybody on the left should take with a hint of seriousness it's it's inhuman beyond anything. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say, you know, it's interesting because people will bring up uh, the Poland thing as a precedent, but, you know, that may be a historical precedent. That doesn't make it moral. <laughs> yeah. And just to link the two together, well, in both cases, in both, you know, in the Polish example, it was Stalin that was the chief, like, organizer of that. And as well, he was doing the same to, like, the Chechens in the Caucasus, like, moving whole peoples from one piece of land to another piece of land and population transfer yeah Yeah. population transfer the same happened in greece and turkey in the 20s you know the turks got their their turks from greece and the greeks got their greeks from turkey and you know let's not let's not also forget that you know during the 1948 war stalin supported the, the israel on them, you know, those guns that were used to expel those Palestinians from their villages and towns were sent by Joseph Stalin via Czechoslovakia, just at the same time as he was doing population transfers between Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia. You know, I don't think, you know, Stalinist uh, ethnic... I was going to say, real quick, I was going to say, I I, I can see you smiling right now because I know you're pissing off the Stalinists that are listening to this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I admit, I do like using that to clobber them over the head with. But it's like, <laughs> since, um, yeah, the you know Stalin's role in the Nakba is one of his uh, less noted crimes. You know, but can you speak a little bit more to that? Oh yes. So basically, between um, nineteen forty-seven and nineteen forty-nine or 1951, the Soviet Union was uh, one of the chief supporters of Israel. Um, It was, you know, just at the, you know, during the 1948 war, you know, the United States enforced an arms blockade on both sides, but the Soviet Union was the one that armed Israel with guns, weapons, tanks, planes, all the rest of it, from Czechoslovakia, and those weapons was what guaranteed or made decisive um, Israel's victory as well. Uh, the Soviet Union supported the partition plan. Soviet Union uh, also vetoed 
the right of return for the Palestinian refugees. That's not, that part's not really noted much. While at the same time, ironically, the United States voted in favor of it at the time. Um, and this, the, uh, and the point was that the Soviet Union did it not because of philo-Semitism or because they really even had an affinity with the Zionist movement, because only a few years afterwards that the Soviet Union would have its, you know, anti-rootless cosmopolitan purges. Which but, was, is that the doctor's plot? Yeah. They, well, that's, it's, the doctor's plot is something separate, but they are very much linked in that it was very anti-Semitic, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, the Soviet Union did it because of a real, real politic calculation to, you know, boot out British imperialism from the Middle East. And the easiest way to do that was to support the Zionist movement, who were already in an open insurgency against the British. Plus, you know, it was ideologically easy for the Soviet Union to do that, because let's not forget that even back then, the, the big part of the Zionist movement was you know, affiliated and enmeshed with the left and even the socialist movement. You know, the the kibbutzim is a is a you know was taken as a radical experiment in alternative ways of living. You know, people forget Noam Chomsky is a Zionist and his you know his whole thing about Akanaka communism, the kibbutzim is the model that he he uses for that. Um and you know, and uh, you know, at the time, a big part of the left was also sympathetic to Zionism. So it was easy for the Soviet Union to kind of support the Zionists. That I was going to say, do you think there are people that just have um, a lack of knowledge about uh, not just Zionism but various Jewish movements um, over history? Because I'll tell you. I recently had someone say to me that they, I was I was talking to them about the Jewish economists in Russia, and eventually I started to realize they think that the Jewish economists and the Zionists are the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> and I was kind of losing my mind because I'm like, no, the Jewish economists are a non-Zionist movement. So, yeah. do you, do you think there's like a, a point where people just don't know the history? Oh yeah, definitely. Then I mean, this conflict is one that suffers from a you know gross lack of historical literacy that you have people who have so much passionate opinions about it yet they know so little about you know the conflict or of zionism like people say a lot about zionism without knowing a thing about it because you know zionism to them is just evil so that's all you need to know about it you know and yeah you know because you know, in the late 19th century, there were, uh, you know, uh, a lot of Jewish nationalist movements that grew up in Eastern Europe. One of them was Zionism. One of them was the autonomists, as you mentioned. And also another one was the Bundes, who were Jewish. They were, they were the main rivals of, you know, the Zionists. And they were, you know, Jewish diaspora nationalists, but who enmeshed it with, socialism and they had a doctrine called hereness that you know wherever we reside that is our homeland and to resolve the jewish question and to you know 
uh, emancipate Jewish people from oppression means solidarity and to, you know, move, you know, to campaign against oppression for all people, you know, <laughs> universalism, that was their whole thing. And, and of course, within Ju the Jewish people, there's always been like, it's a cliche to say, you know, I'll ask two Jews a question and you get five competing answers or something like that. And, you know, this argument about Zionism was a very live one in the Jewish community for a very long time. Like, from when Moses Hess first wrote his pamphlet in the 1860s about the Jews should go to Palestine to create a socialist commonwealth to the establishment of the state of Israel, the only anti-Zionists were Jews. And, and all of them were autonomous, the Bundists, who had their own different conception of Jewish nationalism or communal politicized identity. And then you had obviously the bourgeois assimilationists who believed that, you know, Jews should live as, you know, free bourgeois citizens in, you know, democratic republics. And you have the religious Jews who were opposed to Zionism because they saw it as a secular heresy. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, you see that, you see a bit of that with the Neturai Kata people, right? They're, that's that's the kind of primitive religious anti-Zionism. The, the, I think they call themselves like the, they usually call themselves true Torah Jews, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then you obviously had socialist Marxists who were opposed to both Zionism and Buddhism. Like, so Trotsky, for example, he, he had the same way he said, Buddhists are basically Zionists with seasickness. You know? <laughs> Yeah, if, if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about, I mean, some of this and how there's debate, how there haven't been debates in the past about the Jewish community, I was going to, I always recommend the book. Um, it's a novel by uh, Shane Potok called The Chosen. Mm -hmm. You ever read that one? Oh, no, I haven't. It's, it's an interesting book, but one of the main characters, he, him and his dad have a falling out because his dad's a really religious anti-Zionist. And there's like silence between them for like 20 years. But it's an interesting book because I don't think people realize like there are all these debates in the Jewish community that happened over, you know, the course of the 20th century, uh, not just about this one issue, but, you know, about Israel itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of schisms within world Jewry about Israel because you know, America. Well, there's, there's even schisms yeah. within Zionism itself. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. like, yeah, of course. Because so, Zionism, as I mentioned, as I refer to, can stretch from, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu to Noam Chomsky. You know, two people totally opposite pol politics, yet they are Zionists. Or from, you know, Albert Einstein was an was a Zionist, but he he didn't believe in a Jewish state. He just believed in you know, the, just the basic idea that Jews should, you know, have the right to go back to their homeland and create, you know, a free society. He was a binationalist in that um, Einstein. So, which is very different from, you know, the mono-ethnic, you know, statism that was predominant within the Zionist movement at the time. I was going to say, too, there's even people today... Um... 
and of course they're a minority, but you know, someone like um, the Jewish uh, commentator, uh, Peter Beinert, you know, uh, I, I had someone say to me, oh, he's a liberal Zionist, right? And I said, not really. He calls himself a cultural Zionist. And they're like, well, what does that mean? And I said, he basically believes in a one democratic state where Jews and Arabs live together and it's it's one state. So there's even people that we use this term cultural Zionism now uh, yeah. to say they support a one state solution. Yeah. And you have Norman Finkelstein, who is an anti-Zionist, who supports a two state solution. <laughs> so that's... So it's, it's very interesting how these, you know, how these arguments play out and the labels that we often use don't really correspond to people's prejudices of what they're supposed to mean. I hope this isn't too far afield, but I'm curious. One thing I've covered with a few different guests now, especially, um, you know, some of the Palestinian and Palestinian Americans I've had on is this slogan uh, from the river to the sea. Uh, Palestine will be free. Um, I know a lot of people, in, including Jewish friends of mine, that uh, are very upset about that slogan. Um, that think it's a call for you know pushing uh, Jewish rallies into the sea. You know, genocide, a call to genocide. Uh, the Palestinians I've talked to and I've I've broken bread with, you know, had dinner with. I I think when they use that slogan, they I, I the ones I've talked to, I think really do believe. In a one-state solution, I don't think they're calling for genocide. But I guess what I'm asking you is, what do you think about the whole debate over this slogan? Uh, uh well, it, it's a bit of a pathetic answer, but it's like it depends who's saying it and in what context. Because, like, I think with the like the persons you mentioned that who use that slogan, it's not. I don't think it's a call to genocide. I mean, okay, maybe when Hamas says it, it's a call to genocide, maybe. But I think when they're saying it, it's like an assertion that of the Palestinian right that the land from the river to the sea is their homeland and they have a right to kind of, you know, claim it as their own. That is, you know, and it's not uh, it's like, and and as well, it could also mean that you know, from the river to the sea, both peoples should be free. You know, that both peoples should be able to live equally and freely as free men and women. That's not a genocidal slogan. It's not an anti-Semitic one. Um, but then, again, and yeah. Like when some Western ultra leftists say it, yeah, it can be a little bit annoying because yeah, I'm sure for some of them it's a bit like, well, fuck the Jews. That's what they mean by it. But like when it's like Palestinians that say it, you know, I get it. I get where they're coming from. It's, you know, and but what does slightly frustrate me with it is with this debate is that we go into this merry-go-round over from the river to the sea. While, yeah. while uh, an entire strip of land is being bombed and children are yeah. dying, we're no, you know no, we're not, arguing over Rashida Tlaib. No, yeah, it's not just that, but that the Israeli government has its own from the river to the sea agenda, and it's the only. one I was going to say, there's that um, the Likud charter from I think '77 that says you know yeah. from the river to Jordan there will be Israeli sovereignty. Yeah, so it's like. Nobody's con condemning them when they talk about from the river to the sea. 
and that's uh, you know their agenda is one of national domination <laughs> and further dispossession and displacement of Palestinians, as you see, you know, in the West Bank as we speak. And, you know, I even saw, you know, a post from like, you know, I think Israel's national security chief, uh, who's a Kahanist, that uh, uh, once we, that basically calls for a resettlement of Gaza because it's the Holy Land and God gave all this land to the Jews. It's like, you know, that's just, that's equally just as condemnable as, say, if uh, Hamas or an Islamist says from the river to the sea, you know, and their agenda. I was going to say one of the disturbing things I've seen lately from the sort of pro-Israel side is um, a resurgence of this old, uh, I'm trying not to be emotional about it because I really hate this book, but the uh, from time immemorial, Joan ah, Peters' yes. book, you know, yes. and this line that, well, there were no Palestinians. They were all recent immigrants. Uh, I mean, th the thing is, you know, national identities are often forged in conflict, right? And I, mm. the Palestinian identity comes out of this conflict, and that doesn't make it any less legitimate. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are, these, these sort of arguments that, oh, the Palestinians, uh, th this is just a made-up thing. I mean, because to me, I don't understand the argument. Uh, all social identities are constructed. Yeah, you can you can say that for any national national identity. You know, before you know, before the nineteenth century, there were no Ukrainians. <laughs> well, after the nineteenth century, you had Ukrainians who wanted to assert their national rights as opposed to the Russian Empire who were dominating them. I mean, even even Zionism is a very recent phenomenon. It comes out of the late 19th century, post-1848. Uh, you know, and the point of the Joan Peters book, which is, you know, fraud, like it's based on, it's just, it's a pack of lies, is to, you know, is to try to somehow rationalize and justify, you know, the expulsion of the Palestinians. And their dispossession, because it, it's not just that it denies Palestinians nationhood, but also plays into this like almost Orientalist, semi-colonial view of the land as like barely inhabited, or or there was nobody there, and you know, or the Zionists like made the desert bloom, or you know, and all that kind of nonsense, which plainly denies that there was a population of people who spoke Arabic and were predominantly Muslim, but also a significant minority of Christians who lived in that land for a very long time and they constituted a noticeable political and civic community. And the the um, the what I think uh, Avishai Margalit called the original misconception of Zionism was that in their project to turn Palestine into a Jewish country necessitated a confrontation with the native Palestinian Arabs and would necessitate their dispossession, which would, through historical events, culminate in 1948, what they call the Nakba, the catastrophe, you know, which was... And also, and also, just to 
you know, put a footnote here that, um, you know, one of the frustrating things about this whole argument is that the Palestinian anti-Zionist rejectionism is often sort of like portrayed as this, as, you know, rooted in a primordial, like envious, you know, anti-Semitism and that's all it is. And, you know, a very bloodthirsty one as well. So when, you know, even even um, Benny Morris, you know, the Israeli historian, and no, um, you can't call him, a, exactly call him a softy on the Palestinians. I, I was going to say, Morris is very interesting because he's one of those Israeli new historians. I always contrast him with um, Hélène mm. Pape because mm. I think Pape is very much on the pro-Palestinian side of things. Uh, but they're both saying that there were, that Israel was forged in a lot of ways in blood and, and various crimes. In a way, though, the impression I get from Benny Morris, and this is horrifying to me, but I respect his honesty in, in saying this is how he thinks of it. He's essentially saying it would have been better off if Israel had finished the job in 48. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and his, his um, he in one of his books, he says that the Palestinian, like, resistance to Zionism was rooted in a fear of dispossession. And that fear was realized, was vindicated in 1948 and further vindicated in 1967 and is further indicated now. So the Palestinian rejectionism of Zionism, their enmity towards Israel, is rooted in a rational, materialist, uh, base. It's not. You can't. It's not an irrational hatred. It's not a mystical, uh, you know, all eternal, you know, unexplainable, you know, anti-Jewish hatred. You know that there, there, there are rational reasons behind it that you must engage with, that have to be engaged with and recognized if there is any solution or uh, resolution to the conflict. Yeah, and with um, yeah Morris, that yeah, you kind of have to respect the honesty that he does. Yeah, and I, I hope you don't consider that a, a mischaracterization. That's just how I've read yeah. him. Is that he he no, sort of is saying you know no, uh, this could have all been dealt with in forty eight and we didn't finish it. You know. Yeah, because like there's an interview in Haaretz he gave in two thousand four, where he basically just does say that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine was justified. Just as, you know, it was justified in Australia or the United States. It's like, he basically well, he even wrote a book recently. I don't know if you saw. He wrote a book about the, um, the genocides by Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. Well, I haven't read it, but. <laughs> so there were just a few more things I wanted to cover. Um, you mentioned that there is a way to look at the settler, uh, settler colonial uh, paradigm. Uh, that is responsible. I, I think that's important to note because I, I've talked to a, a number of people over the years and had dinner with people, uh, been to conferences with people who do find it to be a useful paradigm to look at Israel-Palestine. Um, could you speak to that a bit more? Do, do, you, do you think that it's um, – what is the value of, of looking at it through that lens? Um, I think the value of it is – you you can gain you can better understand the history better because 
you know, the, the claim that Israel and Zionism is settler colonial is, is actually not a new one. Like, it's been around for a long time. Uh, you hear, you know, Fire Sayeg was a Palestinian writer, talked about it in the 1960s, albeit through a very third worldist kind of view that was on vogue at the time. Um, uh, Maxine Rodinson wrote a book called Israel, a Settler Colonial State, where he does cautiously, cautiously and scrupulously make, you know, answer in the affirmative that Israel is a settler colonial state. Um, and even many, many Zionists before 1948 understood, you know, the Zionist movement as a as settler colonial. You know, that was um, Jabotinsky's Iron Wall essay, where he, he does literally say Zionism is a colonizing adventure. And he and he, the reason why he wrote that essay was an argument with other Zionists, the mainstream of Zionism. And he was trying to see what are the objective conditions we are in in 1923. And he basically says that to the Palestinian Arabs, it doesn't matter what the justice of Zionism is. They don't care about that because to, to them, we are the English pioneers in North America or in Australia. We're no different to them. And they see themselves like the Sioux or the Aboriginals as a native population defending themselves from a hostile settler movement who seeks to um, supplant them and their national community and you have to and he was basically saying that this is what this is what we find ourselves in and you know and i if and if someone like jabotinsky could understand it like that then i don't see why we can't look at the the um the conflict through that settler colonial paradigm and though we but again like i said you have to be supple and nuanced with it because, uh, you know, people can use that paradigm, make the wrong comparisons. Though, Are you essentially arguing that there's a way that this paradigm, certain people are using it to smuggle in ethno-nationalism? Yes, yes. That, that definitely happens. That absolutely happens, you know. And for too many Israelis and too many Jews, it can seem like a very outrageous and insulting Comparison because a it seems to deny the historical Jewish connection to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, you know the historical biblical uh, connection, and two it kind of portrays like it seems to kind of portray Israelis as like a you know a white alien interloper interlopers who are just in the service of imperialism like uh, like you know the law white Africaners in South Africa or the British in Kenya or the white Rhodesians in what is now Zimbabwe. And that can, you know, for many Israelis, that can rob them the wrong way. Though, if you if you want to make that comparison, you know, and I, want, I do want to say that making comparisons is quite healthy because it shows that Israel is not unique, that 
you know, many, many population, you know, many parts of the world have to deal with very similar problems. And, you know, one thing we have to like do is to disabuse ourselves of this notion that Israel Palestine is somehow unique. That is like, you know, you can't compare it to anything else. There's never been anything like it, which is nonsense because like the you know the there are plenty of comparisons that you can use in various ways. Um, so, like you know, as I you know, if you want to make this comparison, I would say that the nineteen forty eight Israel is more like Australia or the United States in the sense that a solid national entity exists that happened to be erected on the ruins of the previous uh, populations, like you know, civilization. And society, so you know, because another nonsense that we hear is that settler colonial societies are like artificial or synthetic. When nobody can look at the United States, which is the nes plus ultra of settler colonialism, and say, "Well, that's 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 something that's fake," or you know, the American patriotism is not real or anything. Of course, that's nonsense because America. Is was literally one of the first modern nations, and is notoriously a very patriotic nation. Uh, the reason I brought up uh, whether or not, or, or the possible value in the settler colonial paradigm uh, of talking mm. about Israel Palestine, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but since your your article has come out, um, sort of pushing back on some elements of the uh, decolonization movement or decolonization narrative. I've seen articles since that have come out in most famously The Atlantic saying, you know, any talk of settler colonialism in Israel is nonsense. This is fantasy. And I feel like in some ways uh, people are going too far in the other direction now. Yeah, I, I know the the article you're, you're talking about. And like it's, to give you one example, because he's uh, the author – uh, who's a historian, Simon Sebak Montefiore, uh, mentions that the Zionist movement, the Zionist movement's insurgency against the British Empire from 1944 to 1947 as, well, you know, how can it be colonial if they were fighting against the empire? When, it's, when that's like, well, there are examples of settler colonial movements that do fight against the metropole, against the empire. For example, the United States, <laughs> you know, the, the 1776 revolution was, you know, a rebellion by English colonists against the metropole to have their own sovereignty away from, away from it. So, again, a lot of the arguments against applying the set of colonial paradigm just stem from this knee-jerk kind of outrage because, you know, in tw in twenty twenty three, we we understand that settler colonial is like has a bad connotation to it. That you know when you think of it, you think of South Africa or Rhodesia or like you know the crimes of the European empires and and like you know white people oppressing black people and you know to say that and if again it feels extra insulting to Israelis because it's to them it's like. Well, for one, half of the population come from the Middle East anyway, so they're just as indigenous to the 
to the region as um, Palestinian Arabs. And second of all, the Ashkenazi Jews were oppressed precisely because they weren't seen as white or um, European. You know, the term anti-Semitism was coined by German racists saying that the Jews were racially Semitic and not part of European whiteness. You know, <clears throat> but at the same time, we do have to acknowledge that settler, the settler colonial paradigm does have its limits because you you won't know what you're not going to derive what the solution to you know the how you um solve the you know the problem of oppression there because different settler colonial societies have chosen different paths whether it's the United States or Australia or New Zealand you know New Zealand has chose the treaty option so it's like how would you how, how would you apply that to Israel Palestine which has its own specific dynamics so that's the the limits of the settler colonial paradigm and also you know there's also a national aspect it's not just settler colonialism there's also the nationalist aspect because you have two nations fighting over one piece of land who want who ideally want to claim all of it for itself so how do you how do you um solve that you know, and a settler colonial paradigm isn't going to help you much there I also, before we close out, wanted to talk about, so we mentioned Jabotinsky earlier. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to who this figure was? And I guess what he found it, which is known as uh, revisionist Zionism, is that there's a lot of information about him out there, but I, I think he's a figure that you'll find a lot of um, opposing views on. You'll find little tidbits about his uh, you know, relationship with Mussolini or admiration for uh, Mussolini, uh, what's the truth of Jabotinsky and who he was? Um, so, yeah, as you say, he is the founder of revisionist Zionism, which is the school of thought within the Zionist movement that people like Benjamin Netanyahu or Menachem Begin and the Likud party derive from. So, like, he's like the, they see him as like their founding father. And He's 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 a very interesting figure because I jokingly call him the Jewish Marcus Garvey because if you compare the two of them, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways. Like because like you say, the the fascination with Mussolini as the quintessential national revolutionary, and and as well, there you know they love both of them love had a fascination for military uniforms. And like that kind of confrontational like style. Because um Jabotinsky in Russia was an organizer of like Jewish self-defense groups in against like pogroms in the nineteen oh five after the nineteen oh five Russian Revolution. And and he is known as one of the most charismatic Zionist leaders because he was a wonderful orator great writer uh wrote fiction uh you know and he you know and he could put the argument of zionism in a very eloquent way so which is why he has this sort of big following around him and 
you know, obviously in his lifetime, he used to he used to get called a fascist a lot from his rivals within the Zionist movement, <laughs> and like or that he was, you know, could be and you know his fascination with Mussolini didn't really help him in that regard, and. I think he wasn't the only one, uh, by the way, with that yeah. fascinating. There was also what um, Avraham Stern with the uh, Havara That's Agreement, the attempted, the attempted yeah. alliance against Britain with the Stern gang, uh, kind of wanted to work with the Nazis. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's one of those very awkward episodes that people find it difficult to talk about. <laughs> it's kind of because it's it's like, and as well like. Um, Jabotinsky also had did the that underhand collaboration with um, Pelitura, who was an anti-Semitic nationalist in Ukraine, and uh, which is quite a similar to Marcus Garvey collaborating with the KKK. So you know, <laughs> so it's not this isn't really unique to Zionism. Like, yeah, I was going to say the only um, the only author I know, and he's kind of become a right wing crank now that has written. I think extensively about the Havara agreement is probably like Edwin Black, who wrote uh, the transfer agreement, but he also wrote IBM and the Holocaust. Uh, if people want to learn more about that, but um, yeah, it, it's interesting. So do you, there is a direct line between Jabotinsky and uh, the Likud party of today. And, you know, th this also ties in, I guess, to these paramilitary groups, right? Like the Lahai. Yes. And, uh, and he, he, I think Jabotinsky also set up uh, his own paramilitary organization, which I can't remember the name of. I think it's the Beitor Gang or something like that. And which well, there was what, there's the Lahai, and then the other well-known one is the uh, Urgun, right? Yeah. Okay. Urgun Lehi, the Stern Gang. Yeah, my apologies know. if I'm mispronouncing yeah. anything, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was a separate one that Jabotinsky came up with. Right? I can't remember what the name of it was. And, and what, sorry, what was the question? What was your question again? I was just saying that that there is this deep history between sort of uh, various militant Zionist organizations, or what I would call like very right wing Zionists, mm -hmm. and the likelihood of today. Yeah. Yes. Though, though, interestingly, that. Um, the current Likud party in, in many ways uh, kind of learn the like they take from Jabotinsky what they want because you know take the Iron Wall essay like so people like Benjamin Netanyahu would take from the Iron Wall essay that oh we have to you know erect our defences against the Palestinian Arabs to keep them out and we have to, you know, he always like bombasts himself as Mr. Security, which which uh, blew up in tatters on October the seventh. But then they what they don't take from Jabotinsky is that is the um his recognition of the Palestinian Arabs as a living nation. And I was gonna say he's not Kahane yeah. in that sense. <laughs> no, no, he's not. No, Kahanist is the Kahanists are are well to the right of Jabotinsky. I mean, they are really the fascists of Israel. You know? <laughs> yeah. And 
And Jabotinsky was just very realist about it. He he recognized the Palestinian Arabs were a living nation. They weren't just mere rabble and that their grievances had a, you know, an, were understandable from his point of view. He could, he could empathize with it, even though he believed that all of the land of Israel belonged to the Jews because of the historic connection. And he believed that the, that historic connection superseded any other claim to it. And Zionism was just and necessary. And he was, he, but he just had this realism. And you don't really see in, that. In a way, I think that. he was willing to address things that other Zionists of his time probably weren't willing to address. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, he, he, he basically saying, because though the mainstream Zionists, which were on the left, would call him like a fascist and racist and, he would, and he was basically saying, "Well, you're racist too because you you condescend to these Palestinian Arabs. You say that well, we can just buy them off, buy their opposition off with progress and development, and that will be enough to assuage them." And he says, "No, no, no, no. That's that's insulting to them. You know, you have to understand their uh, um, their righteous uh, national claims." attachment to the land and if you don't understand that then we're in a problem we have a problem you know even though he was you know he he would he believed that in the end what we want will mean the transfer of those palestinian arabs away from israel away from the land and but and he was just saying that well don't expect any agreements with them anytime soon and that's why we need this so-called iron wall, because they they have to understand that we're not going anywhere. And once they understand that, then we can some some somewhere down the line hope for peace. And the difference is that the, the Netanyahu types, they just take the iron wall aspect, the kind of defensive posture without any of the realism that Jabotinsky had. In, in other words, maybe the Netanyahu types are uh, a lot more superficial than yeah. Jabotinsky. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So closing out, uh, I guess the other thing I wanted to mention was I, I know there's a lot of debates about Zionism today and what it is. Um, do you think it is important that people note the differences between, say, the sort of modern revisionist Zionists? or, or like? So what I mean is, is there something to be said for differences between, uh, say, liberal Zionists and you know, like Hood Party type Zionists, or do you do you agree with um, maybe the pro, some of the pro Palestinian voices that say no, it's it's all it needs to all be treated as sort of the same thing? I mean, I think in a historical sense, like understanding those differences is crucial because Zionism. Because often the debate on Zionism can be very abstract because Zionism, you know, like I said before, stretches, has a very wide spectrum. Like you can go from Benjamin Netanyahu to Noam Chomsky, from Albert Einstein to Jabotinsky, from Meir Kahane to Bernard Lazar, you know, so there's such a huge spectrum. And then, then you get into the more about political Zionism with Herzl or cultural Zionism with Ahad Am or labor Zionism. <laughs> you know? So there's a 
it's such a wide thing. But I think, but as of now, we can sort of, if we want to talk about Zionism, to the extent we can talk about it, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the revisionist school of thought is the dominant one now. That's the even more so than the liberal Zionists. That, They've won out. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's who's in power in Israel, the descendants of Jabotinsky. And who, you know, are and the government is composed of people who are even well more to the right of Jabotinsky. Like there's Israel's national security chief is a, a Kahanist. <laughs> you know, like and and the you know, uh, the political conflict within Israel, in a sense, is an argument within Zionism between, I, I jokingly call it, between the state of Judea and the state of Israel. Because, what, what do you mean by that? I, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Because the state of Judea representing the settlers on the West Bank. Because the settlement movement called the West Bank Judea and Samaria. And while... And uh, what I mean by the state of Israel is that old liberal Zionist guard who who saw Israel, who wanted Israel to be like a modern, westernized, cosmopolitan, liberal democracy. You know, Tel Aviv as basically San Francisco, but Hebrew speaking. <laughs> and they see the settlers as, you know, messianic, tribal, and theocratic. And that they are going to turn Israel into like a pathetic settlement on the West Bank instead of uh, you know this open modern liberal democratic society, and and, and uh, part of the problem is that you know the the uh, Overton window of Israel's politics is just shifted well to the right. So like where Benjamin Netanyahu seems like the centrist, <laughs> you know, and and then you have like really nutjob people who are well to the right of him. Well, like, it kind of goes back to what you said, yeah. right? Like you said, in a way, Jabotinsky was the realist, right, of of his time. Whereas now, you know, you'll see people say, "Oh, well, it's Netanyahu's that, that that's actually kind of the realist. He's not as far right as Ben Giver or Smotrich, but I mean." Yeah. I, Netanyahu is, is pretty to the right himself. I think that's what get lost, gets yeah. lost in it all. Yeah, yeah, and it's like because because uh, you know you have people in Israel in the Israeli government who talk about you know reset building settlements again in Gaza after they somehow eradicate Hamas, and then you're that, using air quotes there for the people that are listening to the audio version of this. Yeah. Eradicate. When you say eradicate Hamas, yeah, yeah, because whatever, because that could mean anything, <laughs> you know, and some of the meanings of that are pretty, pretty horrid, as we're seeing now, and because people talk about settling in Gaza again, that will seem make that makes Netanyahu, Netanyahu seem like the reasonable one, because I don't think he really wants that, because of the problems that that would inevitably generate for Israel, because. People forget that part of the reason why Sharon disengaged from Gaza to begin with was a to focus more on the West Bank and two because of demographics because they they there was this calculation that 
no longer and longer we hold on to this territory and have settlers in it, then we and, and we can't disentangle ourselves from the two point five Palestinians. That that will some that will inevitably threaten the Jewish majority, and they disengage from Gaza to protect ultimately to protect the Jewish majority within Israel proper, because there comes a point when an occupation can eventually turn into an annexation. And then what happens then? (laughs) I was going to say, do you think, um, I hope this doesn't sound like a dumb question, but there's a lot of debate now over armed resistance when it comes to uh, the Palestine issue and whether it's acceptable or not acceptable. I've seen that debate come up more since October 7th. No, I've known people that live in the West Bank um, that have been attacked by, say, hilltop youth types. And I don't know what Mm -hmm. to tell them if, because if, if you're being attacked by these hilltop youth gangs, I I don't know what other choice you have other than to like resist them in any way possible. But, you know, I think what we saw on October 7th went beyond that Um, Uh, in in Gaza uh, with the attack from Hamas. Uh, so what do you think about this whole debate about armed resistance? I mean, I mean, look, obviously, only a pacifist could say that armed resistance is wrong in ev- each and every single circumstance. Because, like, you know, the ethics of violence and political violence is, a, is obviously a complicated one, and it always depends on the circumstances. You know, but there are differences to be that one has to make. That there is a difference between, say, if a Palestinian in the West Bank defended himself from a gun-towing settler with his own gun and killed him, that's different from what Hamas did in the kibbutzim on October 7th. Yeah, because there's a big difference between defending yourself in you know, immediately defending yourself from someone trying to dispossess you. And, you know, going up to, you know, burning people alive, civilians alive, and, you know, torturing them in all sorts of horrid ways. If you can't make that distinction, then I don't think you can really talk sensibly about, you know, the ethics of violence. Do you think and, there's... But, we'll go on. No, no, go, no, go on, you go. I, I was just going to say, with, with regards to the kibbutzim in... Um... They got attacked on October 7th. It's interesting to me. A lot of people I know have said, oh, these are all uh, newer kibbutzim. And I'm like, no, Kibbutz Berry was founded in 1946 before yes. the foundation of Israel as a state. So do you think there's misunderstandings people have about these kibbutzim? A lot of them are very left-wing. I mean, at least the yeah. older people that live there. And, um, you know, I, I know there's a few anti-occupation activists that lived in these kibbutzim yeah 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 because um historically there were left-wing because the kibbutzim movement is historically a socialist one so it's not that surprising that many of the people lived there and grew up in these settlements uh would be would adopt these kind of progressive pro-peace kind of views but really i i just don't think they really care about that the the people you're talking about i don't think they really care about 
the origins of the kibbutzim or who lived there, what their politics were. They don't care. Yeah, the, the <laughs> thing I, I often hear is, well, they had arms at these. Obviously, they were planning something. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that one because to me, it's, I, you know, I had an Israeli um, pro-Palestinian activist on that said, well, yeah, they have arms in case they're attacked by someone. Um, and that's just going to be a natural reaction. We'll pick up your arms, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously to the Hamas apologists, like these kibbutzim are colonies. So, and they are symbolic of the uh, settler colonialism of Israel. Therefore, it's their, they are, it's their fair game, you know. All civilians are settlers. Yeah, which is just a stupid view to have. It's like, I saw I saw on Twitter, like a, like a bumper sticker on a lamppost said that, from Palestine to Brooklyn, like all settlers must be dealt with, or something along those lines. Like, <laughs> and it's like really, because that's just a. Uh, once you get to that stage, it's you're just you're just engaging in ethnonationalism. Since like, I know a few people yeah. that hold that opinion are listening. What would you want to say to them? I, I'm assuming, I think your view is, this is a lost cause I can't get through. Uh, they're not going to listen to me. But it, if there was one that was listening that was open to what you're saying, what would you say? That, well, I would say that um, history is a is not, is history is a tragedy, not a morality tale. That how you you resolve these questions not by trying to somehow you know make the past right or to somehow kind of heal the wounds or somehow try to reverse it but to look forward to the future to not as fans fan on put it not get stuck in the tower of the past but to create a a new future that can that can free everybody that where you can break this dichotomy between native and settler, colonized and colonizer, victim and executioner, oppressed and oppressed, oppressed and oppressor. You know, that was the point of socialism is to get away from all those kind of uh, distinctions and not to reify them and, uh, you know, make a kind of struggle in that way. That's the true universalist, humanist, dare I say, decolonial position last thing here uh and i know i've kept you long my apologies for that but um with regards to the israeli retaliation for the uh october 7th attack uh is there anything you want to say about that i mean full disclosure my own position is um you know i i i came to the left from the right i would say i was uh kind of a conservative in the style of someone like um andrew basevich from the Quincy Institute. So, you know, I, I always was very into the question of um, blowback and, you know, 9-11 being blowback over uh, over the course of years for things the U.S. did that contributed to radicalization. So my view on October 7th is that the massive retaliation is actually just going to lead to more blowback down the line because it's going to radicalize Gazan youths that are affected by this into supporting Hamas and this will just keep continuing over and over again. Um, so to me, I look at it from almost like a 
a security perspective in the sense of uh, I, I think this retaliation and the extent of it is actually just going to add to more problems, not just for Palestinians, but also Israelis. That's my perspective on it. What's yours? I mean, well, first of all, you could say October 7th was blowback for all the previous wars. In well, Gaza. that's true, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should yeah. note that. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, I think we have to, like, argue against this notion of Israeli retaliation or right of self-defense, because what's going on is goes beyond what you can reasonably call self-defense. It's just pure revenge bombing. Like the amount of people that have been killed, the types of bombing that have been going on, like in the first week, they dropped more bombs on Gaza, a, you know, a pretty small place than the US dropped on Afghanistan in any single year of that war. It, it's like, the one point that, I mean, that's it's one of many points that make me question this whole line that uh, we're trying to uh, minimize civilian casualties as much as possible. Well, that, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just propaganda from the IDF. You know, of course they're going to say that. Um, and yeah, it's just it's it's a massacre. Like that's really what it it is. If not in intention, it's certainly in it in effect. Just like all the previous wars in Gaza were massacres. You know, and you, you can't. You, there's no. Def, you can't rationalize it in any reasonable way as self defense. That's not self defense. That's at best, revenge bombing, you know, and I and and it's also strategic. If we want to take a cold, realist, strategic view on it, they don't even know what they want to do with Gaza after they've supposedly eradicated Hamas. They don't know whether they want to do a ground invasion in full or not. They're doing. They're doing. They're kind of halfway about it because. Well, I, I was going to say even – I mean, I think one of the reasons they're saying the mission is to eradicate Hamas is I don't think they – I'm not sure that all the you know, Israeli power players actually believe that that's possible. Um, but I think it's – something needs to be said right now to the public, so that's said. Um, and I don't think – people are already talking about what a post-war Gaza will look like. Um, and I don't know what it will look like because I don't think Israel wants to administer Gaza – uh, and I don't think as much as people are talking about it, I, I will see articles saying, oh, well, maybe Qatar or the Arab states can come together multilaterally uh, to administer Gaza. I don't see that happening. I don't see no, the no, UN no. coming in. I, I just don't I, – I don't even know what people mean when they're saying they're already talking about post-war Gaza and who will administer it because it, it seems like no one's going to be doing that. Yeah, because what what it does seem, at least part of the Israeli strategy, is to create a security zone in northern Gaza, which will mean displacing like hundreds of thousands, if not a million Palestinians. And then, the, you know, because they want they, part of the whole thing is that we want to stop October seventh from ever happening again. So, so then the question is, what where are those million Palestinians going to go? And there's you know some people have this quick exotic idea that you can just dump them in the Sinai desert in 10 cities and they're just going to be content with it and, <laughs> and you know what you have to understand with Gaza is most people from Gaza are not from Gaza that their at least their families grandparents were you know refugees who were expelled by Israel 
in the 48 war in southern Israel. And the idea that they're going to be displaced again from the little bit of their homeland that they can claim and just take it and nothing and it's and somehow Israel believes that this will lead to stability and peace and and uh or even a kind of a quiet nah no 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 they are they're, they're they're foolish to think that well e even I, I mean also the the thing about multilaterally the Arab states can come in and I, I just don't I don't know where people are getting that because historically I don't think Arab states have worked multilaterally to do something like that. Nah, <laughs> I don't. There's I don't a lot. Know I think there's a lot of wishful thinking, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and also, and then the question is, if you do eradicate, you know, eradicate Hamas, what? Who? You know, there's always the possibility that a group more extreme than Hamas. Well, I was going to say. I mean, a, a lot of people will say. I've had Palestinians say to me, "Well, Hamas is an idea," and I mean. I disagree with that slightly, and it's an organization. I mean, it is the de facto government of uh, Gaza, right? And I mean, this includes people that are just hired by them as civil servants and whatnot, teachers, judges, uh, police, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but th they are right when they say that in a sense, because militant resistance is is going to exist whether there's a mosque or not. Yeah, because it's, it's trying to think that you can solve what is a political problem with bonds. Or just a military strategy. I mean, you can't. You need a political solution. Now, the problem is, is that the the prospects of a political solution look very dim right now, because of how disjointed and uh, fragmented the Palestinian politics is, and how much of a basket case Israeli politics is. And the fact that the two-state solution now seems very remote, because even even as as Blinken and and Biden talk about it, I'm like the the joke I've always heard from people in D.C. is that we'll talk about a two-state solution, but behind closed doors, we kind of laugh at the idea that it's even possible right now. Yeah, it's 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 just so that's the utopian solution, the, the two-state, and now what we're gonna end up debating is what version of the one-state solution we want. Is it going to be the one-state dystopia we already have on Israel's terms, or should it? Is it even possible to swing it to a kind of one secular democratic solution or binational one? Well, then the problem with that is, well, Israelis will now fear that because of October seventh, that any one-state arrangement will be fragile and just degenerate into civil war. So, I've, yeah. I've actually often said that to people is, uh, in a way, I think the forestalling of uh, any two-state solution is making the one-state solution a reality. And I mean, I mean, we already have a one-state reality, I would argue. Yeah. But, you know, the, the secular one-state, I think it's going to be – I don't know how to describe it, but I think that, you know, we're either going to have the one-state dystopia or the one-state, you know, democratic so, secular yeah. state. Yeah, the one state dystopia or the one state utopia, and and I don't I don't know how we move from the dystopia to the utopia. I don't know how you do that because at least at least within current politics, like I could I mean I could say 
I'm an old fashioned Marxist. So I could say the solution is the no state solution. You know, I could do that whole thing. But even then, how do you get there? There's no, it doesn't seem like the forces within society and history are moving, are going to move to that direction. So how do you get from here to what we, you know, what we do want? I don't know. It doesn't, it's, it will take, an internationalist effort, you know, a solidarity effort. But the chances of that seem very remote. One has to admit that. In terms of, so you're in the United Kingdom. Um, in the US, I feel like there's a repeating cycle with regards to how Americans react. And I'm assuming it's similar across the pond, which is, you know, there will be, Hamas will, will, you know, kill an IDF soldier, or in this case, they'll do what they did on October 7th. Everyone is outraged. Israel will retaliate and kill a massive amount of Gazan children. And then, you know, public opinion will shift and people will say, this is horrible. I feel so bad for the Palestinians. Whereas most started out just being like, kill them all. Uh, yeah. And I feel like that's just the public opinion cycle that just keeps getting repeated over and over again. And, um, I was wondering if you've noticed that as well. I'm not going crazy when I say this seems to just be the repeating cycle when it comes to public perception. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was, you could definitely say that um, after October 7th, there was definitely a, uh, a swell of goodwill towards Israel. Because and I was going to say, October 7th is unlike anything that came before it. I mean, I've seen, yeah. you know, like killing three IDF soldiers w was very different, but I think you get what I mean, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and even in the history of Palestinian armed resistance against Israel, there was nothing like October seventh, and um, and there was a genuine, you know, swell of goodwill towards Israel and Israelis because how could you not feel feel that after you know one thousand civilians were killed, like in the most brutal ways imaginable? How could you not feel a gesture of goodwill? But then after Israel inevitably would retaliate and bomb you know, thousands of Palestinians and injure many more. That, so now that's what's dominating you know, public consciousness now. And, it, and October 7th seems like, like ancient history almost, you know, <laughs> at least within the international discourse. Of course, within Israel, it still you know, feels very raw. So yeah, and yeah, and you know, to to such an extent that some people would find even our discussion of October seventh as kind of inappropriate and insensitive. Like, how dare you bang on about October seventh as Palestinian children are being blown to smithereens? You know, <laughs> and and to be fair, I in a lot of ways I understand where those listeners are coming from. Yeah, I do as well. But you have to hold look at this episode holistically, you know. You have to look at what happened before October seventh, what happened on October seventh, and what's happening after October seventh, and what's happening now, and what could happen in the future. You have to look at it holistically, you know, not not just kind of fetishize one little bit of the overall picture. So uh 
I I always like to say that I like to end these episodes on a positive note, but I don't. I think it's doom all the way down. Um, I hate to put it that way, but I just don't see any. If I'm realistic, I don't see any silver linings right now. No, I don't. Either, I have to be honest. I I think I do think that October. I, mean, 7th... I I will say this. I think at some point there needs to be a recognition that bombing isn't going to solve this whole issue. There needs to be a political solution. But it just doesn't seem like anyone is interested in bringing about that political solution. Yeah, and it seems like a new chapter in the Israel-Palestine story has been, well, an old one has been closed and a new one has been created. And we don't know where that chapter is going to go. And that's what it feels like. And I think there's going to be a lot more suffering and bloodshed or you know at least in the near future and it the prospect that there could be any sustainable or viable arrangement or resolution to this conflict just seems very very remote you know even even if netanyahu goes after this war ends which seems i think is very i think that will happen even then there's no guarantee that well, I, I was gonna say i mean i i think the next possible guy in succession would probably be benny gantz and i know a lot of people say well gantz would be a lot better than netanyahu but he's like an old you know israeli military guy that i i think is not like he's not a dove you know yeah it's it's like choosing less bad or just bad <laughs> or just different shades of bad you know <laughs> take your pick and you know the other thing is i always joke that uh i, I think if if it really came close to us getting a piece you, you never know what could happen i i'm pretty sure if there was an israeli prime minister that said let's make a peace i mean he could just easily be killed off by a yagil and their figure the way that rabin was so i mean it's a very complicated and difficult issue and then you then the other question is the fragmentation of Palestinian politics because you have Hamas on the one hand and then the PA on the other hand and neither are going to be the neither of them are going to be you know a viable vehicle for Palestinian self-determination you know and the the fact that that splinter exists benefits Israel because the, the Netanyahu government always saw the splinter between Hamas and the PA as benefiting them because it means that a viable Palestinian state isn't going to happen anytime soon. You know, combine that with the settlement project in the West Bank. Well, hey, Ralph Leonard, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? You're on Twitter, X, whatever it's being called these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. My tag is um, at buff soldier underscore 96 all lowercase you can find me there well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you enjoyed my conversation with ralph leonard and of course if you appreciate the work i do here at parallax views please consider supporting me on patreon at patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said Until next time, 
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.